What I do as, a, as an actor, career-wise, I'm trying to, you know, I create a little dollhouse with characters, and I want to try and get deeper, get different, get better, and I, I hope it shines through. Bonan Vesperon, Casaliotan. Good evening and welcome. Situisessa Televidor Noctemezzo. This is the sixth midnight video. Arovia Felicio Servestino. Your happy servants are. Jim Hall. Jim Hall and me, Phil Walsh. Tonight, can a universal language help remove mankind's final frontier? A pre Trek William Shatner acts entirely in Esperanto for bizarre 60s chiller Incubus. We find that the past is a foreign country while discovering how Doomsday used to look. We leave through a scrapbook of footage from the nuclear age and enjoy a side order of fries at the Atomic Cafe. And Replicant meets Mannequin. Rutger Hauer and Kim Cattrall find something nasty beneath London in futuristic British thriller Split Second. Right, well I've had a pretty rough week at work this week. You're actually rubbing your eyes into the <laughs> microphone as you say that. Oh yeah. You're was, like Marcel Marceau. Uh, it was quite tiring. I don't know, it's been really hectic cycling to and from work this week. I don't know, all the nutters are out now that it's summertime. So uh, yeah, what about your week? Um, I had an exciting week. I went to see Roger Waters uh, perform The Wall. Oh, my mate went to see that. Yeah, which night? I've got another one. <laughs> You've got another? Uh, yesterday, would that be right? He may have done, but he'd have missed the night I went when it wasn't just Roger Waters, it was Pink Floyd. Um, Dave Gilmore um, came on. It had been said for a long time he was going to do one of the British shows, and he appeared oh, wow. on top of the wall, um, which was great. Um, although the thing was, because it was so, we were so far away, um, which was kind of the point. You were meant to sit far back to get the the whole of the wall with all of these projections on it. Spectacle. Um, that when this guy appeared, there was it was. There was a big applause, but it took a while for people to realise it was Dave Gilmore. It's like it could a ripple been. effect through the crowd. Is it? You could tell everyone was mentally thinking, "Is it him?" And my mate said, "I didn't know if it was him because he thought I thought he had a lot. Um, he looked like he had a lot more hair." And then he realised he was wearing um, cans, headphones. Oh right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then right at the end, uh, they dragged Nick Mason, the drummer from Pink Floyd, mm. on as well. Uh, I felt a bit sorry for him because after this massive applause for. Gilmore and his guitar skills and they drag him on Nick Mason with a tambourine just at the very end <laughs> oh, yeah there was other people in the band yeah <laughs> yeah, he's still alive yeah but uh, given he's the only guy I think Roger Waters has still been on speaking terms with kind of throughout all of his I'm sure everyone knows about this legal problems mm. that they had but no it was fantastic to see a really good spectacle excellent, excellent. and uh, in, in keeping with my dinosaur music tastes I'm off to see Rush uh, you're not so impressed with that. Well, you know, each to their own. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. But, um, I won't judge. No? Okay. It was better than that accordion music from Bellatar last week. Well, no, how dare you. I don't. Did they sing any songs in Esperanto, though? Nope. What a neat link we've got there. It was a creepy guy. Uh, but what does that mean, creepy guy? It means that he was he believed in evil, and he was evil. He breathed evil. He ate evil. He smelled of evil. Of course, that could be that he was never took a shower and ate garlic, but 
It doesn't matter. Anybody named Milos Milos. M&Ms were named after Milos Milos. Esperanto was a beautiful dream, a deliberately devised auxiliary language to unite the peoples of the world. By 1966, it hadn't quite swept the globe, but still had millions of speakers peppered across it. How best to promote this new tongue? Outer Limits creator Leslie Stevens thought a horror movie starring William Shatner was the answer, and thus we have Incubus, a film made entirely in Esperanto. The dark storybook plot has a fabled well of spring water that's rumoured to heal the sick and reverse the ageing process, but which is also a hangout for beautiful female demons, eager to tempt the greedy and grab souls for their infernal master. This is probably the only film I've ever going to watch that's filmed entirely in Esperanto. Yeah, there is another one, uh, but there's no subtitles for that one. Which makes it a bit redundant. But it's, yeah. yeah, it was filmed two years before this as well. 64 is. Is it a horror France. movie? No, it's a crime. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we mentioned on the last show the Psychotronic Encyclopedia, which um, is the reason I know this film. I remember reading through it all 20 years ago, and when it got to this, I think there were some standout movies with this, um, you know, filmed in Esperanto with William Shatner. Sounds very exciting. And there was another one, a vampire movie made entirely, entirely in sign language called Defula. And we looked at both, there were clips on YouTube. And the thing is, Defula, there were clips, but it doesn't look like it's much fun to actually sit through. It's it's one of those things that works as a bizarre premise, but you really couldn't watch more than a couple of minutes of it. And, you know, obviously um, the people have been hired for their abilities to perform American Sign Language rather than their acting skills. Mm. But, yeah, I, I suppose the point I'm conveying there is this sounds like it's going to be a hoot. You know, William Shatner, we're all familiar with his acting style and is kind of a... a not a camp icon. He's a sort of comedy buffoon figure, isn't he? Yeah, he's kind of a renowned eccentric. Within yeah. The Although the shame with William Shatner, I think, is in the past twenty odd years, I think he's slow. It's dawned on him. He know he now knows he's in on the joke. Whereas I think it was a lot of fun when you did hear um, things like his famous album, The Transform Man, and you got yeah. the sense he was doing that from a very sincere place. This probably makes me sound quite. Uh, quite mean but yeah I mean obviously that's very funny so I was approaching this expecting a hoot I thought this is really good I'd agree I'd say this might be the most interesting and could be the best film we've watched so far for me yeah I I mean I yeah I was blown away by it I just I'll throw in Bergman yeah I'm glad you said that because I there is some great images in this I'd recently watched the seventh well I lie I've recently watched half of the seventh year. I, could, I didn't finish the rest because I was uh, otherwise oh. engaged. Well, yeah, I don't want to say that. But, um, I'm sorry to all our Swedish listeners out there. <laughs> or Bergman fans. He's a, he's a fascist anyway. But no, I'm glad you said um, Bergman. I thought that, although I've looked around on the internet, and I think lots of reviews make that same comparison. Oh, really? it's, it's an obvious one to make. I mean, a completely valid one to make. Incredible image. Yeah, it's great. I mean, a great thing with this, the Esperanto really lends something. If this wasn't in Esperanto, and if it had somebody other than uh, William Shatner in it, uh, I'm not sure if I'd have probably thought, assumed it was Spanish or something. But the fact I know it's Esperanto, which is this invented language, almost makes you feel it's set in this kind of weird mishmash of European locations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of 
was that an intentional? Uh, yeah. Leslie Stevens wanted to shoot it in Esperanto because he wanted it to be otherworldly. He yeah. wanted it to be foreign, yeah. for want of a better word. And the language lends itself to that. But yeah, very much so. Much to the uh, delight. Yeah, much to the delight of Esperanto speakers who went to watch, who went to see it and said, "This is like, the worst." The worst example of our language. <laughs> All right, because is it? I've no idea if it's performed well or not. And I used to think it's phonetically. Yeah, uh, much like our introduction, um, <laughs> which I'm sure has no kind of syntax or grammatical. I, I have to translate that all word by word. Oh, you did a good um, job. How do you know? <laughs> but I'd always hoped with this that Shatner was a devotee of Esperanto and would put himself behind this. But it turns out it was a gig for him, and he had to learn it phonetically. And um, we agreed. This is. The visuals in this are fantastic, and the whole thing does feel otherworldly. Um, the whole Dream thing, like anaric, all of those usual <laughs> things that we say. <laughs> but the fact there, yeah, it has this. Um, the plot does feel like something you'd have as a grim fairy tale of some sort, um, in both senses, with with one M and two M's mm. as well. Um, there's a lot of talk now about people like Neil Gaiman and whatever making dark fantasies but this really felt this felt much more to me like a story you'd have as a kid but then you'd hear a much as a, as an older uh, once you're older you would hear the source material of it being something a lot a lot more adult um, yeah it's sort of because there's definitely like a sexual Neil element did with like the company of wolves yeah. uh, Angela Carter sorry yeah. um, I should say Angela yeah. Carter because she did know. she did the yeah, book she writing did she did it proper yeah, I mean, it has got that fable feel to it, and with the magic well and these succubi. Yeah, although they're, yeah, they're beautiful blonde women, aren't they? I mean, mm. just explain. We probably didn't explain this. The reason there's the Bergman kind of comparison is they they tend to uh, these women, these the succubi in it, stalk around in sort of black robes on a beach, a bleak looking beach with waves crashing around. So yes, it does bring up comparisons with Seventh Seal and Through a Glass Darkly. Yeah, because also you have like the the meadow where the well is, and there's mm -hmm. a tree, and it's very similar to where the troop in the seventh yeah. sea, like the dance troop. But yeah, the scene when uh, the two sisters are talking, but even that's been staged really weirdly because they're kind of confront, they're facing each other, but askance, so they're staring. They almost got their chins on each other's shoulders, and it just looks weird. It's like why aren't they facing each other? And it kind of. Uh, I don't mean to mock it, but it did remind me a bit of the way that ABBA videos used to be staged with yeah, the two girls I, in kind of profile and uh, I know exactly face what on. you mean. Yeah. But to have added just a little touch like that really shows an invention and almost a, de a determination to make this seem as otherworldly as possible. Because throughout the the lighting and the the movement of the camera, there's some mm. really like kinetic moments. So where Kaya and Shatner first mark. Um, Shatner's character first kiss and they drop down towards the camera and the camera comes down with them and the light sort of seeps in between the, the cracks of their faces mm. it, it's really like incredibly vivid yeah and another bit early on when I mean the, the film opens with a victim being claimed by one of the the succubi and um, a little later it's clear she's killed him and he's been buried in the beach but just his hand is coming out of the sand but it's not like a close up of his hand it's a detail you'd probably you'd notice out of the corner of your eye. Mm. And the fact that they don't really draw attention to that, I think it becomes a bit more uh, relevant a little later on. But it's it's nice at the beginning just to have that slight sense of, is that a guy's hand I'm yeah. seeing? Or is that a rock or a bit of debris or something? Because there's quite a few sort of uh, subliminal uh, pieces of editing where mm. it cuts to in between scenes it's cutting to images of like that dead chap yeah. in the sea and, and 
it, it's really like it clicks in and it's like what yeah. what was that was that just the yeah if he's body that? washing around and it again adds just a really dreamlike it's an obvious thing to say but yeah and a strange just a strange dream mm, but yeah and then yeah obviously you have the beach scenes at the beginning the hooded figure the the cowled figure mm. um yeah i mean I've, i was really stunned yeah. by that opening scene i mean i've watched it a couple of times yeah i think we both um, watched it and then watched it again with a shatner commentary independently because right, yeah. yeah that's fantastic on the dvd and again i think it's a shame that shatner's sort of mocking this somewhat isn't he in the commentary uh, yeah, i was really I hoping he'd be a devotee of esperanto <laughs> that's all you wanted him to well be. <laughs> yeah i know i i just I think he plays up too much to that image of the buffoon now, and it would be nice. It would be nice to know there's a sincere place in his heart for. Um, but I think he's done so much as well. And you know, when you get to a certain ob- age, yeah. it might be you're just looking back, and it's yeah. Obviously, this was a few weeks' work for him, mm. and yeah, nearly fifty years ago. Although I think he does a good job. You can. It still has the Shatner acting style in it, but yeah. he does seem he's he's good in it. Again, it's of that time. It's probably a low budget. Fo- well, it's a low yeah. budget film, and uh, you have that. Uh, theatrical sort of approach to acting that has been lost now but it lends itself really well but the thing that really helps the film Conrad Hall's cinematography which is absolutely magnificent I think that that's probably what makes the film um, so good overall yeah it it looks great throughout and um, jumping ahead I mean the plot of this does have the the female demons um, usually luring people who've gone to the well for bad reasons you know just because they're vanity yeah Mm. whereas Shatner's character is recently home from some war I say some war because obviously it does seem to be set in some mythical yeah you're not sure he has a military style jacket yeah he's got his crutch as well and it took me a while to realize he's with his sister isn't he rather than his girlfriend although that's quite interesting yeah Yeah, there's something Freudian there isn't there yes um but one of the demons wants Shatner's character because he's a pure soul uh, and when she can't have him she calls upon a senior succubus. Well, it's a sister, isn't <laughs> a it? A sister. Um, yeah. And they call up the incubus, the, the, um, who's initially represented by this massive pair of bat wings, which is really nicely shot. The thing that reminded me of was Night of the Demon, the Jacques mm. Tournier. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I've it's very expressionistic, isn't it? You know, yeah. But that's not meant to be the incubus, is it? It's just some kind of weird herald heralding of him, because then the incubus is this sort of. Uh, I'm not a sure what to call it. Yeah, <laughs> this is it. I didn't want to say he was a beefcake, but yeah, he's, he's after that expectation that it's going to be some kind of demon, uh, you know, in a conventional animal kind of sense. Yeah, you get this sort of guy. He reminded me of a bit of um, Javier Bardem or something mm. coming out of the mud. Um, really well done as well. Really I mean, done. Like it he's looks just come literally out of the earth. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> he was just happened to be hanging around there and sort of pops out, but. Yeah, this is it. it. It's got a real sexual undercurrent through it without being in any way explicit. Mm. And um, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, because, well, I mean, from the outset, there's there's that sexual feel. Uh, well, the I first guy who called, gets... What's she, Kaya, isn't yeah. it? That's the main uh, succubi or succubus. And succubus. <laughs> who is actually, the at the time, was married to... Or was the lover uh, of Leslie yeah, Stevens. Yeah, Leslie Stevens. Yeah. Um, I think they did get married eventually. But yeah, I mean, she's just brimming with sexuality as uh, she leads one of her victims down to the beach where they can dance naked, as mm. she says, or is translated. And then, yeah, I mean, the 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 intense sort of meeting between her and Shatner as well. There's there's 
and even Shatner and his sister, there's this sort of bubbling undercurrent throughout. Yeah, this is a real standalone movie, I think. It's um, and like I say, I read about it twenty odd years ago and assumed it would be relatively easy to track down, but it did have well, allegedly a curse, isn't it? There was what was it? The one print survived. It w- in which had been France. which had been trans it had French subtitles. It was hard coded with French yeah, subtitles. Yeah, so they couldn't be removed and um and that was meant to be lost. Had the other prints been burnt or Well I think Stephen, Leslie Stevens was um he wanted to get rid of everything basically. So Do you know why? Because of the curse. Oh because he thought it was cursed. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. He genuinely because especially when um Well there were all these things. There was the suicide. suicide. Um and Atmar and then yeah. and Milos Milos, who um hopefully we've used the clip in the introduction to this podcast. But M&M. he Eminem. Um Shanna calls him throughout. Um he'd been having the actor who plays the incubus, Milos Milos, had been having an affair with Mickey Rooney's wife and within an, uh, not very long after this killed her then killed himself mm. and um, obviously there's not a curse it's kind of like our old friend Max von Sydow says of The Exorcist you yeah. know well no it's a film that's made over a long period of time and people die <laughs> people, die, people yeah. die but yeah it did I think in fact that does give a it does help give it a weird sense I mean my my view on that is actors are probably going to be there's going to be higher incidents of highly strung personalities in acting and filmmaking so Mm. that kind of thing's going to happen you know um yeah yeah but the fact that they were yeah you had a suicidal character there and a, a murderer um th- these things do invest something in the film as usual we're not going to spoil it but did the film build towards a sort of um a good resolution for you it was kind of surprising for me to be honest you were talking about grim fairy tales before and they often have a not always ambiguous but like sometimes a bleak ending and mm. this took me a little bit by surprise but I thought it worked up to it well yeah because I, I think I am going to reveal itself. I am going to reveal this because I think it's still quite it just the idea is not that weird but the image is um, the image definitely <laughs> the image when Milos Milos transforms into this black goat and it's not entirely you're not entirely sure if it's a real goat or a sort of stuffed goat mask it's a kind of weird it's the head of a goat of a real, a live one or a dead one? A dead one. Right. It's the head of a dead goat. But it looks fantastic. Mm. Um, and this is not long after Shatner has kind of um, made it clear he'd be happy to go off to hell, really, because he's been so uh, besotted with this girl. But that's, yeah, I mean, like I say, this is, a, this is so much better than I expected it to be. Um, so there's not much fun to be had from Shatner's acting, although he he is at his most Shatner-esque during that scene when his emoting <laughs> real high drama I mean I did mention this to um, a friend of mine that we were going to cover this uh, my friend Colin um, and he was very curious about it and I think he said he immediately started looking on Amazon and couldn't find it no it was Love Film I don't think he could find it listed on there and was the copy you got for us that I got was it in the States off a guy on eBay right. I think it's really hard to track down though yeah. um, and it's it's really worth getting the Region 1 because it's got two commentaries um, and an interview with the producer but yeah well worth tracking down um, yeah weirdly we, we have the sci-fi channel to thank for restoring this or putting the funds up for it yeah th- there is one little gripe is that the subtitles are pretty much in the middle of the picture yeah, but I this feel is because they're covering the, the, the hard coded French subs but it doesn't really yeah, you know you get over that 
absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. double thumbs up from uh, a pair of us. And, I've got uh, my big toes up as well. The French love this film because they can't understand it. And the French speak, when they speak French, they're very difficult to understand each other. Now, I speak French coming from Canada. I speak French, and they can understand me in my habitant French. But they don't understand each other. So when a film comes that is in Esperanto, and they can't understand the Esperanto, they're right at home, and they feel comfortable. The nuclear standoff between the superpowers was still very real in 1982 when the groundbreaking documentary The Atomic Café was released. With no narration or newly filmed interviews, this instead compiles a wide array of footage from the dawn of the atom bomb in the 40s and across the following two decades, ranging from military test footage, street vox pops, newsreels and government safety films, providing an often blackly comic and troubling snapshot of the naive attitudes and worthless advice that now characterise the era. All the world knows we Americans are constructive, not destructive. However distasteful this may be to us, there is no choice in the matter. Let us build a bomb. Okay, a um, few shows back we covered a faux documentary, The Fools, by Peter Greenaway, but this is the first time we're covering an actual documentary. Um, although, like I um, said in the introduction, a groundbreaking one, I think. Um, this is very much how documentaries seem to be made now, which is this more, more of a collage approach and um, chopping together a lot of uh, found footage to create its own story, rather than just... The narratives in the images. Isn't yeah, I think we used to documentaries up until this point were probably all filmed following a subject around. And this was, as far as I'm concerned, this was a new approach. And now it's, it's I mean, this is a very well-known documentary and used to turn up on TV quite a lot. I'd not. This was the first time I'd had a chance to see it, though. It was one of those films that kept getting away from me. Whenever it was on, I always missed it for some reason. Um, yeah, because I'd read about it in Shock Express 3, uh, collected the collected issues, and Kim Newman did a piece on um, films from McCarthyism and that era, you know, the, the paranoia. Mm. And... Uh, this came up and I was I thought that sounds really fascinating it's really interesting yeah like I say this was this used to be on TV quite a lot um, I know it's actually been available for free on YouTube in its entirety uh, like I say I think this is closer to the approach a lot of documentaries do now which is recontextualizing if that's not too fancy a word um, it's old footage yeah okay um, <laughs> no, messing a monkeying around with old footage um, but yeah the fascinating thing with this it doesn't have it, it's it's entirely um, an exercise in that. It's, it doesn't have its own narration. It doesn't put anything to... It does editorialise a great deal. But I was um, going to say, yeah, it, it has a message. Oh, definitely, yeah. But uh, what was... What did you feel watching this? Varying I'll, emotions. Because yeah, um, I just say the poster for this, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it's something like uh, hilarious and chilling or something. And I'm not sure... Because it's classed as a horror movie, I think, on IMDb. Wow. It's um, like horror, documentary... And it goes to show else. how good those kind of tags are. Mm. Um, because something we've touched on in, in previous shows, uh, when we were talking about the, like, David Lynch style and taking small-town America and treating it as something either uncomfortable or funny, this uh, you don't get this so much now, but there did used to be a big movement of really putting a spotlight on small town American values or just American values in generally that sort of gee whiz thing of the 50s and 60s mm. uh, and sort of mocking it just because it's so it seems so alien to us and watching this 
now, even though as I say it's the first time I've seen it, I didn't find that at all. There's nothing funny about this. It really made me think. It made me think that probably the world hasn't moved on that much. You still get those uh, in the way that this is conveying a sense that people just kind of believed what they were told and went along with it. I don't think things have really changed that much. I think you still get a received wisdom from the way things are presented to you. So that's something I would I did want to say when I was watching this. This really feels like um, it's probably not a good comparison, and uh, some people might slag me off for this. But the way that in Fahrenheit 9/11, Michael Moore made a very specific point about saying how um, American uh, citizens are just fear is pushed into them always, and for him to say that now in our like contemporary period obviously nothing has changed because mm-hmm. there's something that has uh, carried on you know there's a there's a way of um keeping the public buoyant in some mm. way <laughs> by these um tactics these methods yeah. and, it, and that I mean, that kind of sort of effect that i had from watching this a film that was Put together in 1982 from stuff from, from the 40s and 20, 50s. 20, 30 years earlier. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite worrying in our current climate as well. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is now there's the idea that um, the, the public's kept in a state of fear. That doesn't come across in this film particularly because the thing that struck me, there was very little about people being terrified of the bomb. It was more about being told, we've got the bomb, it's okay. That you know, We need this to keep people at bay, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with this, the idea of duck and cover as if, you know, it's just a big bomb. It's not something that's going to have, no, have an afterlife to yeah. it. And, uh, so I think, I think uh, to clarify my point, is yeah. that it's the fear of everyone else, yeah. not the fear of the bomb. I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I think it was... Or yeah, the xenophobia. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think that, that's, it's, that's more what I was uh, aiming at. Um, because yeah, yeah, that is the thing throughout this. It just seems like this has obviously editorialised to get its point across. But what really comes through here is more the sense that I don't know if people are being at this period were being kept ignorant about the full extent of the damage the bomb could do, or if people genuinely didn't know the people in authority didn't know, or whether it was just I don't know. It just jars so much with that image of how you imagine. 50s America in, in specifically because um, that's something we're used to seeing represented in film so much but yeah I mean the, the big thing for me was the animation in it Bert the Turtle Duck and Cover yeah he looks like a very basic uh, animation of this um, turtle and I think he's got a little hard hat on but mm. um, and he hears the sirens ducks inside his shell and it's like everything's going to be okay yeah, if you read uh, Roger Ebert's review of this, um, he's from that baby boomer generation, so he grew up with Bert the Turtle, and he made a point of saying, you know, this isn't that. Sorry, I'd love that's a good image. I'd love to see Roger Ebert growing up with Bert the Turtle. <laughs> <it's>, uh... <laughs> um, but he made the point of saying, you know, that it wasn't an issue for him as a child growing up. It it was just part of everyday life or whatever. You know, it was just accepted. And that's a scary thing, you know. It's just accepted. It's mm. just it's just part of your day to day life, you know. The fact that when we want to go on holiday to another country now, it's just accepted that you have to take your shoes off, your belt off, you know. It's, your turtle shell. Your turtle shell. <laughs> yeah. I had really mixed emotions watching this. I had real. There was real hilarity because of the apparent stupidity that uh, was on display mm. from the government. 
but yeah. also it was it was so sinister and dark as well. That's that's more the emotion I got from it was people being is it disinformed if it's deliberate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if disinformed is a word, but you know the sense whether it was a, a, a propaganda thing, but. Um, Oh, no, that was the thing that. Yeah. yeah, that was the thing that struck me on this, and like I said earlier, it just struck me. We can laugh at this because it all looks very quaint, but I don't. Re- I really don't think things have changed a great deal. This is still how the, there is. I'm not even sure there's anyone behind it, but just the idea that people base their opinions on very small amounts of information and don't want to look into things because it would be too much effort or too frightening. The idea of what they might find if they start. Mm trying to investigate something not in a all the president's men way or something but just actually bothering to read read a few books or check out a few websites it's just that that's the biggest fear for me is just people's willful ignorance of just well that's what i've been told so that's okay yeah it's like mr garrison in uh south Park. yeah mm, drugs are bad and key yeah that, that is very much like what it is it's, yeah. it's a blanket statement that covers everything and like we can it ducks and covers yeah <laughs> It's the kind of thing that on paper should be just sort of laugh. It's like reefer madness or something, you know, watching yeah, those Yeah, an hysterical old, kind of... Yeah, it's like, oh, God, can you believe that? But yeah. like, very pertinently, like you say, it's, we don't seem to have moved on at all. No, because, I mean, throughout this, it will cut from these pointless government films um, to uh, news footage of, I can't remember the name, it was Rosen, Rosen, Rosenbergs, Rosenbergs yeah. uh, Julius and... Uh, who were electrocuted um, for um, passing on nuclear secrets, which you know, obviously, not a not a great idea. But the again, the footage of people with sort of don't 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 fry them; it they'll stink too bad. Hang them instead. It's just the oh, the relish with which these things were being done. I mean, obviously, as we said, it, the point I want to move on to now. When I said this was editorialized, you did sort of nod. <laughs> Did you have a problem with this? Did you feel it was pushing its message a bit too? Yeah, I did in a way. I mm. thought it was propaganda in its own way. Isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I think they sort of. But it's very hard. I mean, I think that's a human characteristic. They're obviously um, anti what the message of the original source, the source material is, mm. uh, the the filmmakers. But then you always fall into that danger, that that trap of going so far the other way and it really builds up into that sort of a crescendo you know it lacked the the punch of say something like um, if a nuclear well bomb, threads yeah the Is 80s one or the war game no the war game the, sorry yeah, war, Peter Watkins I think yeah, yeah. It, it lacked that I think it needed something a bit more like really shocking mm. Whereas actually, it, just to explain, the War Games is a faux documentary, isn't mm. it? It's done as it, it's done as if it's a verite thing after a nuclear attack has happened. Well, during and after, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And the BBC at the time it was made in the late sixties, banned it because they thought it was going to cause too much of a panic. Well, mm. sort of pertinent to this, they thought yeah. if people knew the facts, it was going to be it was going to cause a mass panic. Suppress, yeah. suppress. Yeah. So that wasn't shown till some twenty years later, nearly, I think. Um, but whereas something like that has. You know, there's um there's a an almost moral ambiguity to that because mm. they're not saying that that's wrong or right or it, this builds up to the too far the other way for me. I thought. Yeah, although well, that's that's which a point. is no bad thing. This was made in 1982, so it's about as old now as enough, uh, as much time has passed now since some of the footage that it's referencing. If you go the other direction, it's nearly as old as me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, when were you born? When another you know, brick, brick in the wall was number one. I think <laughs> keeping the Pink Floyd thing going. 
Yeah, does this documentary in itself look dated to you? I don't think so. No. No. No, I th- I thought it was put together clever use of music, yeah, well edited from a technical aspect. Mm. Um and and selected. Selected, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's what the word is? I was going to say a relic. It's a good yeah. relic, but uh, but you seem to you sound like you have some problem with its pushing this moral. Which I'm not really sure in my own mind why. I have that. I think yeah. it's because you're kicking against the man. I often find well, I not think the man. This would be the I've, liberal, I've grown yeah. up with documentaries and stuff where over the, certainly over the last fifteen years, you have got people like Michael Moore, Morgan Spurlock, these yeah. kind of people who are just just so liberal and left leaning that. You sick? I'm sick of that as well, mm. and I feel that this is—it's sort of skirting that boundary. Yeah, but it's also it's the opposite of them because those two particular filmmakers um, are, are determined to get in on the action, aren't they? And sort of Nick yeah. Broomfield before them, who want well, to be yeah. part of the action, and you know, I think the skill of a good documentary is to stand back and. Which is yeah, which, which obviously you could never do. I mean, we these are archivists as well who've done mm. this, so you know that they've spent a long time doing that and they must have felt like we're putting our heart and soul and effort into it you know surely we should put across our uh, opinion as mm. well. which is you know it's fair enough but I'd like to I, I think deep down I'd like to have been a little bit more that you don't have that almost <laughs> this is I was really fucked up you don't have that human touch to it almost you know you're just showing it you're just saying look this is what, what this was is it. there but you know inevitably you do have to because um, yeah there was a documentary I borrowed off you recently about um, Nine Inch Nails I mean it was kind of an interesting documentary but the thing it totally lacked was any kind of standpoint and you're used to any kind of documentary being constructed and building towards telling a story and this really did, the Nine Inch Nails one um, did feel like somebody's last year of film school project where they'd filmed a load of stuff and didn't really they wanted to include as much as possible they hadn't really bothered putting a th- narrative thread through it so you did end up with just review, review, review all the way through it you didn't get any sense of um, they hadn't seen uh, Todd Phillips uh, oh Gigi Allen <laughs> have you seen Gigi Allen? yeah, yeah, yeah I've got it uh, yeah. yeah no that's that's an amazing film but we're going off um, off point this does seem like a prototype for the way documentaries are done now um, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Yeah, because I mean, I'm a yeah. huge fan of documentaries. I probably watch more documentaries than I do fiction films now. And um, I don't know, th- this was such a. Uh, I've only seen this for the first time recently, but I think the first time I saw something a little bit like this was um, Errol Morris's uh, documentary, The Thin Blue Line. Mm-hmm. Which, all right, it's not quite the same thing, but it does use archive footage to kind of put things into a different. Uh, to illustrate some of the points it's making, I don't know. I'm kind of pleased now, after twenty odd years of this, that documentaries seem to be shifting away from it a bit now. I suppose because um, HD um, film units are fairly cheap to get yeah. hold of now, it does mean you can come up with some great stuff. But um, well, I'm pleased we've covered a documentary finally. Um, there's a lot of others I'd love us to do at some point. We did avoid King of Kong, which we're both massive fans of, but we think it's been covered. Yeah, well I've, I've got the other. I've got the first one. Um, Chasing ghosts. Chasing ghosts at the beyond the arcade. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, just to explain, King of Kong. If you don't know, it is about a um, a bid by uh, one guy to beat the reigning champion of the arcade game Donkey Kong, which is better than any Ben Stiller film. And I like Ben Stiller films, but it, it feels so much like that kind of underdog versus a person with no idea of what how his public image. <laughs> 
um, is a, just an amazing mullet. Great. But yeah, I mean, that's uh, well, that's a good example again. That's very much something which has been editorialised, although I think uh, they're such extraordinary characters, those two guys there. Uh, Give them enough rope. I've got, I've, yeah, yeah, I've got another documentary that we should probably uh, probably try and cover. It's a Scrabble one. Oh, yes, I've, yeah. Word Wars, yeah. yeah. Radiation. This is the one new effect obtained by the use of an atomic weapon. Truthfully, it's the least important of the three effects, as far as the soldier on the ground is concerned. Rutger Hauer donned his black trench coat and shades to play a cop with attitude problems in the low-budget 1991 sci-fi thriller Split Second. By 2008, London is flooded and rat-infested, and Rutger's detective Harley Stone has plenty of other troubles to keep him permanently grumpy. Teamed with a preppy, officious Oxford graduate he wants to throttle, reunited with old flame Kim Cattrall, and psychically connected to the returning serial killer who slaughtered his previous partner, occult symbols at murder scenes and impressive plaster casts from teeth marks suggest the killer is not of this earth. Don't move or I'll blow your head off! What the hell are you doing here? I'm trying to think. Do you mind? You must be sick laying in all that blood. You saw him, didn't you? I know you did. You can see him. I can see him. It also means I'm not crazy. Basically from about 1989, I started being allowed to watch 18 movies so I'd been about 10 years old but I could get away with watching anything and I absolutely raided Arnold Schwarzenegger's back catalogue he was like the be all and end all for me Hey, and Van Damme and I was sort of by the time I was about 11 or 12 I was really like craving for another other heroes <laughs> other actors speak uh, other people acting in a language not there first well, yeah, quite. So, yeah, Christopher Lambert, Highlander, The Fortress. Oh, The Fortress was a few years later. But there was this little moment, um, a sort of a few months of ecstasy, where I discovered Rutger Hauer. <laughs> um, my dad said, you've got to watch this film, basically. He sat me down and watched The, hit, uh, the Hitcher. The Hitcher, yes. And I, I was absolutely gobsmacked by that. I thought, who is this guy? Like, he was so intense. I'd, I'd not seen Blade Runner, strangely enough. No. It's I've, very different kind of film. Well, it is, and also I think Blade Runner's a film you're probably not going to be too excited by when you're very young. It's, no, it's no. something for the. Um, it, it's something for when you're a, a poncy teenager. <laughs> so as I was approaching my uh, poncydom, yeah, um, yeah I, I watched The Hitcher, and I was genuinely blown away by that, and so... I dug out some more films by Rutger Hauer and a friend of the family um, had Wedlock oh which yeah, Exploding, Exploding Collar yeah, yeah, which I think had already been done in Running Man yeah, it's a kind of standard sci-fi idea yeah, and uh, Blind Fury I've seen clips from that, yes Blind Vietnam Vet back in America uh, the, show, the clip they always show from that is him with a kind of walking cane um, sorry, you know, concealed uh, Zatoichi, basically. Isn't oh, it? right, okay. But I think he's going along and manages to detect that there's a there's a dog shit in front yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can probably smell it. And then along came Split Second, which I've owned on VHS up until about four years ago, and I got rid of all well, not all of my tapes, a lot of my tapes. 
and uh, I've since bought it on uh, Region 4 DVD which I lent to Jim mm -hmm. but Split Second is one of like I'm patting my heart now yes. I hold this film very dear wow this very is something very me. special for you um, can I ask why? because I think from the late 80s early 90s I was really into 2000 AD so yeah this is when you... Uh, which is a British comic, uh, very celebrated. Um, yeah, Judge Dredd, if anyone... If anyone bothered watching the, um, <laughs> the Sylvester Stallone. No, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I did watch this with a... F Judge Dredd, the comic strip there, about this sort of futuristic cop, who again is permanently... He doesn't take any crap, does he? He's no, no. Um, there was very In much right that... Wing, yeah, although... <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll move on to the Judge Dredd thing later. The thing I'd say about this is it came around the same kind of time as Richard Stanley's Hardware, mm. which wasn't based on a 2000 AD strip, but eventually had to kind of acknowledge that there were so many similarities it may have been unconsciously. But um, it's great because I, I grew up on 2000 AD. It's a fantastic anthology science fiction comic, which had a lot of great British artists and European artists. So it had a really great diverse but very distinct visual sense to it and it was disappointing when you got um, films like this which tried to do a kind of this was it earlier on I was wondering where the influence of this was and whether it was Blade Runner filtering down to something much more low budget or whether it was comics like 2000 AD and someone attempting to do those but you know whatever you put on screen isn't going to match the visual flair that these great artists had I thought this was terrible. <laughs> this was the first time I'd seen it. I was aware of it for a long time. Uh, it did look like a lot of fun, but I'm genuinely confused with this, and I'm not being sarcastic whether it's meant to be a comedy or not. I mean, it would be enough to say it was tongue-in-cheek. Well, no, it's not enough to say that, because to begin with, it's so cliched, the setup and all of the dialogue in it, mm. because th there is Ruggahawa... Um, who what in a I think as they say at the beginning London's flooded but there's so much pollution that it's almost always night you know that old Blade Runner idea but he's always putting on his shades um, I don't know if he's meant to be based on a kind of Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry or Man With No Name that kind of anti-hero but he takes it to such an extreme you just think you know why is this guy being tolerated by anyone he's a cop who's completely out of control there's a scene very early on when his boss, uh, Alan Armstrong, a very fine British character mm. actor, is, as his boss was really giving him hell, and so, oh, you're a menace, you know, you're a cop with gun, you, uh, we've diagnosed, you know, we suspect you're paranoid and stuff. He said, you're off suspension, <laughs> yeah. but if you screw up again, well, I'm going to send you to the worst hellhole. I think, well, why is he off suspension? <laughs> He's just been identified, what, going to a murder scene ahead of the murder. Yeah. And shooting a, a trash can and thinking, calling a, a Rottweiler a dickhead. Well, that was one bit I really liked. Um, <laughs> Howard turns up to this this club uh, and sees a Rottweiler run by Ian Drury, run by Ian Drury, and shows the Rottweiler his police card, uh, his ID, and then later on, after this murder, looks at the dog and says, "You saw something, didn't you?" And I thought, this is either a nice touch to show that he's flipped, or there may actually be a nice bit when it's revealed in the future. Dogs have mental you know they've been um, augmented or something <laughs> mentally uh, but it doesn't go anywhere but um, again that whole scene with Alan Armstrong giving him the usual you're out of control you know I've got city office breathing down my neck and all mm. this kind of stuff 
everything in it is cliche and I didn't understand if it was comedy or not because after a while it looks like it is comedy with the scenes with his um, yeah this preppy partner he has Neil uh, Neil Duncan or Alistair Duncan as um, Dick Durkin Dick Durkin who yeah this is a, an astonishing breakthrough in cinema script writing um, they've teamed a maverick misanthrope with uh, a by the book kind of guy I mean, Durkin is Judge Reinhold in um Beverly Hills Cop, yeah, but, but Scottish. Or, or the old lineup. Not that it was a show I particularly liked, but Red Dwarf, where you had Rimmer and Lister. But yeah. at least there, it was clearly defined that uh, Chris Barry's character was someone you wouldn't want to be around. Whereas there's no reason to really dislike this guy. He's not like he's, uh, he's not someone you might want to know. But he's not really that bad, is he? No, I suppose not. Yeah. Howard just instantly takes against him. Yeah, I because mean, that's. That's how well drawn the character is. <laughs> My view is completely tainted from nostalgia. Your nostalgia yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I've watched this film twenty plus times. So right. I, I, I have such fondness for it. It's, it's virgin. It's like your humanoid fondness. You know, I could probably. Uh, no one could mistake the humanoid for a comedy. <laughs> but without trying to like get on my high horse and say well you're missing the point or anything I, I totally accept where you're coming from this is the first time I watched it critically mm. to be honest because I, I was trying to see it from um, a first time point of view or see it from the point of view uh, well critically for want of a better word but I found it really hard because I was just enjoying it so much so I, I, I just loved it I love the fact that it yeah it's tonally all over the place it's absolutely driven by cliches holds it driven and decorated exclusively with cliches yeah but but there's still though there's something it's pacey I don't know did you get bored or Um, no I mean again I watched it twice I watched it last week and then I watched it again this morning before doing this I enjoyed it more second time around because I think there was an expectation it might be genuinely fun Uh, because when I watched it last Sunday it was after um, you and I had watched a bunch of Dolph Lundgren films as well (laughs) With a few friends, and they would that was that was genuinely uh, very enjoyable. So maybe there was some fatigue at watching yet, and that would have been the third film that Dad watched where a cop was teamed with a partner he didn't want <laughs> anything to do with, uh, was getting jipped from his boss. But I couldn't get a handle on this. Um, I watching it today, I wasn't even sure why it was set in a futuristic flooded London because there wasn't really much point to that. Although the best thing about it is that setting, you know, that feel that gives it kind of nice feel, but it yeah, doesn't yeah. it doesn't go anywhere with it. Other than the, mm, yeah, we can tell people this. The killer in it is supposedly something. It's a beast of some sort. It's not human, um, which possibly has rat DNA in it. And that was one of the things I did like about this. They do create that futuristic London by having little posters around everywhere warning about plague pits mm. and rat infestation and details like that were really good I like that it's little details that really um, suggest police hovercrafts that that, panda hovercrafts that was (laughs) nice but then you've got terrible things like Pete Postlethwaite who died recently and Mm. um, again very well regarded actor but he he seems to be there for no reason that character's there I mean obviously at that point he wasn't so well known but that character as a whole there's no reason for him being there You, you say you've watched this many times yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh oh. I may have missed this. The scene when. This is about halfway through. Uh, Rutger and Dick are 
there's a there's a sort of murder in progress, I guess. They go into an apartment and there's a hail of gunfire. Mm. And um, oh yeah, the the monster has a gun. Why? Because I was confused by that. <laughs> Initially, I just watched and thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I thought, well, hold on, the monster's got massive claws and huge teeth. Why is it carrying a oh, projectile weapon's always going to be more useful than a close combat? I just found that an odd <laughs> moment. It's, it would be like watching Aliens. And, and alien having a gun. And yeah, yeah um, and uh, Bill Paxton getting sort of <laughs> an alien <laughs> having a bazooka away. or something. Is that <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, it's totally incongruous, but it's great. <laughs> Although, yeah, let's get into the technical side of this. Directed by Tony Malum, um, but nice credit at the end subway shots and additional material by ian sharp suggesting mm. there was possibly some uh, trouble behind the scenes i've not read into this too much i mean i know that well uh, tony malem had sort of a bit of a career behind him he did the burning yeah um which was one of the video nasties and i think it's an early appearance for uh who's, who's the guy from seinfeld uh george is it Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter as well. Although, um, and features a serial killer called Cropsy, which is also <laughs> most <laughs> wonderful things about it. And looking at his filmography, he's done an awful lot of um, sort of documentaries about motor racing and film Genesis live in concert in yeah. the mid 70s. <laughs> but yeah, I have, for various reasons, seen one of his more recent films, which is called uh, Journal of a Contract Killer, which is is very flat no it, it didn't grab me at all this I'm afraid yeah no I mean the whole idea the plot is just ludicrous it is nonsensical uh, there's so much going on there's like the cult there's this psychic link with the monster there's um there's a genetic the thing as well, isn't there? The genetic thing. The idea that it's absorbing the DNA of its various victims. Yeah, it's uh, set in a, a a drowned London and stuff. These are all like, stories that I've read about in 2000 AD. That's why it really reminded me of it. But thrown together into but a bucket and, into and a stirred around. Film and then, yeah, hoping to get something out of it. Yeah, and on the subject of comics, there's a bit that, again, struck me as just where was this going? Halfway through... Um, Dick pulls out this comic, The Black Mask, which they must have put some effort into doing the cover for yeah, and doing the yeah. mock-up. Uh, no, I freeze-framed that and all yeah. that, so are they going to reference and they've anyone? In, they've there? invented a few of the superhero names that are on the mm. cover, and um, it's never mentioned again until the very end, <laughs> yeah. when he just has a voiceover saying, oh, another case for the black, black mask. You think... Was it really worth it? And you get the feeling that a lot of this was either lost in editing or if it did have two directors. I think lost in editing, because if um, what's his face? Ian um, Ian Sharp. Was Ian the Sharp. He really only came in right at the end. Mm, yeah, <coughs> which does bring us to the actual monster itself. It seems fleetingly. Uh, it's, yeah, it's usually this big. What is it meant to be? About eight, eight or nine foot Ten tall. Feet yeah, yeah, running across. It's an alien ripoff. Yeah. It's a, quite a bad alien ripoff. I mean, yeah. when you'd get any kind of close up of it, it's its teeth, which again sort of have the fluid, the saliva kind of dripping off yeah, it. Yeah, long, sort of spindly, spiky fingers. I yeah. mean, it was done by uh, Stephen Norrington, who mm. people might know from absolutely raping and pillaging the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, again, we come back to comics. <laughs> he did Blade, the first Blade movie, and he did a good film called Death Machine with Brad Dourif. Which oh, is, I don't know that. That's a good one, I okay. like that. That was his debut. Pretty poor monster, but... I can't 
you no, no, I, I can accept it. you got nostalgia for it's, it. It's but, terrible. Um, I feel I feel kind of guilty for liking it so much. <laughs> and um, why is it called Split Second? Oh, good point. Why? Yeah. Nothing at all. I don't know. I, it's I, maybe cause, yeah, I've always wondered that. And yeah, we've not mentioned Kim Cattrall at all. Um, she looks she's like she's fresh come off the set from. Uh, I was going to say <laughs> Star um, Trek. Star Trek Six, and you can tell because her the size of her hair is, look like she's only just grown out a little bit of uh, hair there. Only just. You get a gratuitous boob shot as well. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure what she makes of this film. I'd love to know, given she's now this sort of. Is she a superstar or just happened to be in a very lucrative? Well, she's no, she's not a superstar. She's been sort of like a, a grandma hooker in Sex and the City for the last 15 years, hasn't she? Yeah, whereas <laughs> Rutger languishes. No, he's doing, isn't he doing a voiceover for like Mox and Spencer's ads or something? He's he's doing some, oh no, Lurpak. He's doing the Lurpak ads voiceover. <laughs> After his lucrative Guinness. Uh, oh, those were good. No, they oh. were they were good. They really played, the on his, played on his image, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Kim Cattrall's not really the main attraction here, though. For us, it's Michael J. Pollard. Who's, Always uh, the Pollard. Yeah. Who Actually, what is his best-known role? Is it Bunny and Clyde? Or, have you ever seen the Oliver Reed movie Hannibal Brooks when he's Take the Elephant? No. Across the el- Michael Winner directed that, but that's what I first knew of Michael J. Pollard, who's got... You would recognise him if you if you don't know his name. He has a very distinct kind of... He usually plays a hobo. Yeah, a sort of slightly nuts... But happy to be nuts character, <laughs> but he crops up for the film's finale, which is in Cannon Street, not that far from where we are now. Yeah, we're oh, yeah. we're we're right by London Bridge. That's probably a mile away or something. Well, yeah. this is like we've done like two shows in a row now where we've been polarized. <laughs> That's is this the beginning of the uh, the end of our? Uh... No, we become Siskel and Ebert. Now. <laughs> what the hell is this? Multiple restriction polymorphic DNA sequences. Bullshit. It has the DNA structure of all its victims. It says here it's got rat DNA. Yeah. So once again, we come to the end of another edition of I mean, that video, show six, done and dusted. I've forgotten what it is in Esperanto. Is it Televido Noctemezzo? Yeah, that sounds about right. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's another good little show, that. Really yeah, enjoy I, that. I really enjoyed that. I think uh, it's it's good now we're starting to find some films that... Um, we're branching off into um, disagreeing yeah, on stuff. A bit more uh, diametrically about... Yeah, who'd have thought? I thought Howard the Duck was going to be the one that split us, but um, no. we're united in hatred there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, yeah, um, hope you've enjoyed the show, as always, and um, please do get in touch with us or follow us. Um, so our website, as always, is midnight no midnight-video.com that's the one or get in touch with us directly at midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk or follow us on twitter at midnightvideo that's the one um, again it's the one <laughs> um, yeah and facebook just search for midnight video with uh, we've got about 33 people who like us so why not be the 34th and please subscribe to us on iTunes because it gets updated you know you just have to yeah, get boot asleep. up your iTunes and then we're there like. get us leapfrogging over all of the other <laughs> podcasts out there yeah and some star ratings on iTunes would be nice oh. uh, one, two, three, <laughs> four, five. <laughs> it doesn't matter can't you sound like you're running a protection racket <laughs> some uh, star videos would be nice yeah. <laughs> and uh, get on Facebook if you're that way inclined and there's a discussion board on our midnight video of um, page, and it's just a good way for us you to say what you'd like to see as well. Yeah, watch. or g- give us some idea of what people 
kind of films they want to cover. I mean, uh, our friend Steve the other day suggested a western. I think we do need to, to cover a western of some sort. I've got a couple yeah. in mind. I'm I think I did specify western. badly dubbed westerns. Okay, I haven't got. No. Okay. <laughs> well, so we'll, we'll we'll come to something soon. But um, yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, show six in the can. Um, join us again very soon for show seven. Good night. Bye. The drink that you don't pour. Now, when you take one sip, you won't need any more. You're small as a beetle, a big as a wheel. Boom! Atomic cocktail. Falls a splice all around the place. When you see it coming, just grab your suitcase. It'll send you through the skies like air mail. Boom! Atomic cocktail.